From the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 18 through 26. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Steve and Shannon. Um, Appreciate uh, everything that both of you do for our our church. Good morning. As Steve said, I am one of the elders here, as probably many of you know that. And if you are a guest here, we are so glad you're here. And if you are a member, a regular attender, we're glad you're back. Um, Before we dive in, I would love to pray once more for our time together. As those who know me best know, I can use all the prayers I can get. So, God, we... um, Just come before you. We confess that we are not worthy to be in your presence. God, we ask your spirit would continue to fill this place this morning. Lord, please um, use your word to encourage and uplift your people. And help us leave this place glorifying you. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. We celebrated my wife's 29th birthday this week. That's right, you can cheer, it's okay. For the sixth year in a row. Um, and as we were, we were celebrating, we, we had some, some pizza and some cake uh, with, our, with our three kids. And part of that, uh, as, as that process went along, the, the children, one of the children, was very frustrated that the other children was getting some cake. And so they, they did not want that to happen. Um, essentially, they, they got in a fight. Um, the, the child was greedy. One of, the, one of the children was greedy. If you don't believe we're sinful from birth, come to my house from 4 to 7 p.m. every single week, every single night of the week. Amen. And I, that's right, amen. So, so, you see, the seeds of greed have already sprouted as your parents drive you home from the hospital. A few years ago, 60 Minutes and Vanity Fair polled Americans on the topic of greed. And I'm going to read to you some of the stats from that poll. 80% of Americans feel that politicians are driven mostly by greed. 50% believe that someone who is greedy is more likely to be successful than someone who is selfless. When asked, what comes to mind when you see an older man with a younger, attractive woman, nearly 40% 
of people answered she must be with him for the money. Only 8% thought maybe it's his daughter. (laughs) And nearly 80% of of Americans think that greed is not good. Although most people in America, as we just heard, have a negative view of greed, what's interesting is that it's really hard to find people who think they're guilty of greed. Now, as Steve mentioned, I work as a financial advisor in my, as a, in my day job. And over the years, I've met with anyone from bankrupt families to multi-millionaire business owners. And I have yet to have someone come into my office and say, you know, Tyler, I'm, um, I'm really struggling with greed. Would you help me? Has never happened. I would venture to guess that Steve as a pastor has never had someone say that. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, pastor and author Tim Keller says this about greed, and I'm going to read it to you. Notice that in Luke 12, Jesus says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. This is a remarkable statement. Think of another traditional sin that the Bible warns against, adultery. Jesus never says, Be careful you aren't committing adultery. He doesn't have to. When you're in bed with someone else's spouse, you know it. Halfway through, you don't say, oh, wait a minute. I think this might be adultery. You know it is. Yet even though it is clear that the world is filled with greed and materialism, almost no one thinks it is true of them. They are in denial. So the question is, how do you break free from the power that greed has in your life, especially when you may not even realize that it's there. In other words, how do you experience true financial freedom, which has less to do with the balance on your bank statement and more to do with how much of your identity, comfort, and security comes from money? Today, we're going to answer that question in three points. Point number one, one thing you want. Point number two, one thing you lack, and point number three, one thing you need. So let's dive in. Point number one, I'm going to give you some background info about this passage that hopefully kind of helps give you some context. This particular story of the rich young ruler is found in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. For the parents out there, I don't know about you, but when I tell my children something three times, it's usually pretty important. No, no, no. Stop it, stop it, stop it. All three places tell us the man Jesus is talking to was rich. Matthew tells us he was young, and Luke tells us he was a ruler, likely some sort of religious leader. So this guy, at least in the world's eyes, has it all together. He's kind of a big deal. But there's something he's missing, and this missing piece is incredibly important. It's important enough that in Mark's account of the story, the man actually runs up to Jesus and kneels before him, before he asks the question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this is where it gets interesting. Jesus immediately does two things. First, he pushes back on the man's definition of goodness. It's almost as if he's saying, young man, Do you know what you're saying? 
God is good. He alone is good. And if you're calling me good, then who do you think that I am? Then Jesus follows that up with something we least expect regarding how to attain eternal life. In verse 20, he says, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Now, if you've been around church at all over the course of your life, even if it's just been at Easter and Christmas, this should surprise you because what Jesus is saying is drastically different than I'm guessing what most of you have heard before. Jesus doesn't say, just believe in me. He doesn't tell the man to check on his, a box on his connection card, although we ask that you would do that if you're a good visitor today. He doesn't ask the man to say a prayer and repeat after him, and he doesn't echo Paul's words in Ephesians that were, that were saved by grace through faith alone. No, he takes the man straight to the summary of the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. He then proceeds to list only the commandments that have to do with loving your neighbor. We'll come back to that later. You see, elsewhere, Jesus says the entire law can be summed, a law of God can be summed up in two commandments. And I think these are on the screen. I'm going to read them to you. In Matthew chapter 22, chapter 22, verses 36 through 40, he says this. Teacher, excuse me, someone says this to Jesus. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replies, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, and soul. This is the greatest and first commandment. And second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So in responding to the rich young ruler, Jesus skips the first portion of the Ten Commandments that deal with loving God, and he goes straight to the commandments that deal with loving your neighbor. The man asked about what he must do to inherit eternal life, So Jesus says, if you're trying to earn eternal life, obey the commandments. At this point in the story, you can almost hear the man breathe a sigh of relief as he responds to Jesus in verse 21. All these I have kept from my youth. If this guy's rule keeping was equivalent to spiritual merit badges, he would be an Eagle Scout. Okay? Commandments... Check, been there, done that, got the t-shirt, bro. Now the text doesn't say this, but I can only imagine that someone like Peter, who's typically known for sticking his foot in his mouth and saying exactly what he's thinking, maybe Peter or someone like that is thinking, can you believe this guy? Did you hear what this bozo just said? Where was he in the Sermon on the Mount? You see, To refresh your memory, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually goes into a little more detail about some of these commandments. He says things like this in Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And then a few verses later in Matthew 5, 27 and 28, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, this rich young ruler 
is completely blinded to how far short he actually falls of keeping the perfect law of God. He may have followed the letter of the law, but he missed the spirit of the law by a country mile. Nonetheless, Jesus decides to play along, which brings us to our next point. Point number two, one thing you lack. You can almost hear Jesus, congratulations, young man, you've kept the commandments. You're so close to eternal life. There's just one more thing. Eensy, weensy little thing. It's hardly worth mentioning. And then he says in verse 22, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have, distribute to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. That's all. You see, Jesus is is turning the man's idea of commandment keeping completely upside down. He's using God's law for one of its primary purposes, which is to expose the sin in the man's heart that he didn't even know he had. It's almost as if he's telling the man, you keep the commandments, do you? Interesting. Just to double check and make sure, let's run through them real quick. Humor me. We'll start at the top. Commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me, including the God of money. How's that going for you, Mr. Ruler? This is Jesus' way of saying to the man, if you really love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, then you'll give up everything to be with him. And if you really love your neighbor as yourself, then you'll give up everything to help him. Now, let's imagine for a minute that we're in my office. I'm a financial advisor, okay? And let's say the rich young ruler is my client. And he comes into my office Monday morning and he meets with me and he says, Tyler, I met this guy yesterday. His name's Jesus. He's a, young, he's a religious leader. He's, he's kind of a big deal. People are talking really good things about him. And I asked him, how do I gain eternal life? And he says to me, Empty your retirement accounts, sell your house, your car, get rid of your checking and savings. We don't need that anymore. Everything that you own, give it to the poor. John three sixteen, compassion, fish, pick your favorite charity, and then come follow me. Now, if I'm being completely honest, the first thing that's going through my head is, as an advisor is, Clearly, Jesus has never heard of Dave Ramsey or Clark Howard. Because everyone knows you're supposed to keep an emergency fund equal to three to six months of living expenses. Okay? And then number two, I'm thinking, obviously, this, this Jesus fella is running some sort of pyramid scheme or a dangerous cult, and I need to call the police. But, but that's not at all what the rich young ruler did. Nothing like it, actually. The text says in verse 23... But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. It's almost as if the ruler was agreeing with Jesus' statement, but he just couldn't do it. Jesus, I get what you're saying. I understand that that is what I must do. But I can't do that. That's simply asking too much from me. Now, I've heard people say, just to clarify, that by asking this man to sell everything, Jesus did not mean that you and I are supposed to sell everything. 
It doesn't mean that anyone who wants to come to Jesus has to give up everything in order to follow him. And I agree 100%. In fact, just a few verses later, we see in Luke 19 that the tax collector Zacchaeus, everybody remember that song? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. There we go. Yeah, yeah. See, you know. Zacchaeus was asked to give away just half of his wealth before Jesus said the word, salvation has come to this house. So why would Jesus be satisfied with Zacchaeus's 50% but only ask the rich young ruler, or excuse me, but ask the rich young ruler for everything? I can tell you for certain that it's not because Zacchaeus had a Groupon. Jesus also wasn't running a semi-annual 50% off sale. No, you see, the text doesn't say this explicitly, but what it seems to, Jesus seems to be implying is that the problem with the rich young ruler is not that he had riches. The problem is that his riches had him. Jesus knew that this man was putting his hope and trust in his money, which led to a defective view of his relationship with God and his money. And when you stop to think about it, you and I aren't that different from this gentleman. We live in the richest nation on the planet in the history of the world. Let me share with you some staggering statistics from the website Global Rich List. If you've never heard of it, it's essentially a website that has a calculator where you can plug in your income that will tell you approximately how rich you are on the world's economic spectrum. Now, the statistics were a few years old, so I updated them for inflation to get a little more accurate accurate numbers. Number one, if your income is approximately $16,350 a year, that's about minimum wage in a full-time job, then you are in the top 10% richest people in the world. It takes you about five minutes to earn enough money for a can of Coke compared to the two hours it takes for a laborer in Indonesia to earn the same amount. Let's say you um, get a promotion. Now you're making $38,500 a year, which is about $18.50 an hour at a full-time job. Now you are in the top 1% of people based on income, in the entire world. Does everyone remember the the Occupy Wall Street movement a few years back? They were talking about the 1%. What we didn't realize is we are the 1%. It takes you one year to earn the same amount of money that the average laborer in Zimbabwe earns in 31 years. If your annual income is approximately $95,000, which is about $45 an hour at a full-time salary, or excuse me, a full-time job, then you are now in the top 0.1% richest people in the world. Your monthly income could pay the monthly salaries of 358 doctors in Pakistan. I won't go any further because I'm sure by now you get the point and you probably feel as convicted as I do. The bottom line is that our country And the majority of us in this room today, maybe not everyone, but the majority of us in this room today are unbelievably wealthy when compared to the rest of the world. This relative 
level of wealth can cause us to be blinded to the roots of greed that can grow in the fertile soil of our hearts. Here are some examples of how this might play out in your life. Let's say you live paycheck to paycheck and you dream of the day when you can pay off debt, which is not a bad thing, by the way. Remember, I'm a financial advisor. I know that. But it's primarily because you seek the comfort and security that being debt-free will provide. Or maybe you feel great when your savings account is flush with cash, but you're plagued with anxiety when you have to deplete that savings account for an unexpected home or car repair. Or maybe you mentally compare your house, your car, your clothes, or a thousand other things to others who have those same things in order to keep up with the Joneses, not our Joneses, (laughs) as the saying goes. Or on the flip side, you feel self-righteous because those in a similar income bracket as you maybe live considerably more a higher a lavish lifestyle. And you kind of think in the back of your head, I can't believe them. They should be more sacrificial like me. And lastly, you're confident and optimistic when your investment or retirement account is doing well, but you get nervous, anxious, and frustrated when the market tanks. I've never met any clients like that. These are just a few examples of how our identity, comfort, and security are tied to our money and our wealth. Much more than we tend to care to admit. And I personally have experienced every one of those things over the course of my life. In one sense, our struggle with greed actually goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. They had the entire garden All the beautiful plants, trees, fruits, vegetables, you name it, it was theirs. God said you can have it all except for one tree. You can have everything else. So what did Adam and Eve do? They took from the one tree God said not to touch. In essence, they were greedy. So then when Jesus says in verse 24 and 25, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I imagine you can now feel the full weight of what he's saying. Our version of the camel is when pigs fly. It's easier for a pig to fly than it is for a rich American to make it into the kingdom of heaven. That brings it home a little bit, doesn't it? When the... when the disciples and the others heard this, they, were, they practically gasped and said, who then can be saved? You see, in Jesus' time, much like in our culture, if someone had wealth, it was typically seen as though God had blessed them and they had God's favor. Today, we may say it slightly differently, but we might be implying the same thing if we're not careful. Hashtag blessed. In Tulsa especially, there is a deeply held spiritual belief that if you do the right things, have enough faith, you 
will have more money and more success than you ever will dream of. And then if you don't have a nice car, a big house, a good job, or lots of money, then you don't have enough faith, and God is against you. That is a lie straight from the pit of hell. To some degree, though, those of us sitting here in this room and the people that were listening to Jesus believe that too. Maybe not totally, but to some degree they did. Because essentially they asked, whoa, whoa, whoa. If this guy can't get in, then who in the world can? Which brings us to our final point, point number three. One thing, or I'm sorry, one thing you need. And I didn't have Shannon read this. But in verse 27, here's what he says. But Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And see, this is the beauty of the gospel. God makes the impossible possible. He takes the 900 pound camel and he threads it through the eye of a needle. In Christ, God does for you and I what we can't do for ourselves. In other other words, Jesus is the one thing you need Just like the words we sang to the song earlier, Jesus, you are enough for me. With nothing, I still have everything. Jesus, you are enough for me. If there's one thing I want you to take away from this message today, it's, I have to drink a bottle of water because I've had a sore throat. Um, Just kidding. This is it. You'll never be free from the power of greed until Jesus is all that you need. But here's the thing. You won't actually see Jesus as the all-satisfying gift you need until you realize just how much he actually gave to purchase you. And I think Luke, more than any other gospel writer, goes out of his way to emphasize this in terms of the material poverty that Jesus um, took on during his time here on earth. For example, have you ever been asked the question, Were you born in a barn? Jesus could have answered, yeah, I was. Not only that, he was placed in a manger as a a newborn. That sounds very precious around Christmas time until you realize that a manger was simply a feeding trough for dirty farm animals. Now, new dads are typically clueless, so I'm guessing that was Joseph's idea. There were no moms, even back in Mary's time, that were at Target thinking, hmm, I don't see any animal feeding troughs on my baby registry. Maybe I should change that. You see, all of these things happen to illustrate the poverty of Jesus. Fast forward, Jesus' presentation at the temple when we learn that Mary and Joseph, Joseph offered a sacrifice of either a pair of turtle doves or pigeons. The text doesn't say which. One of those two things they offered because that was the alternative that we learn back in the Old Testament, for people who didn't have enough money to afford a traditional sacrificial lamb. So they couldn't afford the lamb, so they had to sacrifice the birds. Fast forward to his ministry years, and we have several more examples illustrating the material poverty of Jesus. I think these are on the screen. He preached from a borrowed boat. He multiplied borrowed food. He rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. He ate his last meal in a borrowed room. After he died, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. Jesus himself even tells us essentially he was homeless 
In Luke 9.58, when he says, Foxes have holes and, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In a sense, Jesus dropped down just a few notches on the economic ladder when he stepped out of heaven to come to earth. And to the degree you see how much he stepped down into poverty for your sake, to that degree will the power of greed loosen its grip on your life. Then you'll be able to save, spend, give, and live in a way that highlights Jesus as your supreme treasure. Your saving will be less about hoarding for tomorrow and more about prudent planning as you seek to live in God's will for today. You'll start spending more intentionally in ways that maximize glory to God and increase your joy in him. You'll start living a life of generosity by serving others with your time, talent, and your treasure, expecting nothing in return. Your giving will be more intentional, sacrificial, and cheerful, highlighting Jesus as the ultimate gift and the ultimate gift giver. You see, Jesus stepped down out of heaven into temporary poverty so that you and I might become eternally rich in him. Jesus was born in a barn so that you could be reborn into the household of the faith. Jesus' parents couldn't afford a sacrificial lamb, but he later became the ultimate sacrificial lamb on your behalf. Jesus was essentially homeless at times in his adult life so that you could have a room in God's house for your eternal life. Jesus ate his last meal in a borrowed room at a borrowed table so that you could always have a special place reserved at his table. And he was buried in a borrowed borrowed grave so that one day you would overcome the grave. In our passage, the rich young ruler failed to keep the commandments, he refused to give away his wealth, and he walked away sad. But Jesus, the ultimate rich young ruler, perfectly kept the commandments, willingly gave up his riches, and for the joy that was set before him endured the cross in order to purchase you as his treasured possession. As you meditate on that truth, the hand of greed will loosen its grip on your heart and your identity in money, the roots of your identity in money, the comfort security that you find. And the master gardener himself will transplant that identity, comfort, and security out of the weeds of greed and into the garden of the living God. As that happens, you'll begin to rejoice in him as your ultimate treasure, and your rejoicing will continue for all of eternity. Or in the words of the old hymn, Be Thou My Vision, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise, Thou my inheritance, now and always, Thou and thou only, first in thy heart, High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Let's pray.